You're listening to a Climate Change. This is Matt Matter and your host. I've got a great guest on the program today, uh, Peter Fikowski. He's the author of Climate Restoration, the only future that will sustain the human race. Uh, so Peter says that if we, even if we get to net zero by 2020 or by 2050, we'll still have a trillion tons of CO2 in the atmosphere. And we need to remove that CO2 from the atmosphere on a massive scale without huge government outlays. And that's the premises of his book. And he's got four promising solutions for climate restoration. We'll talk to him about those. Peter's an MIT-educated physicist, serial entrepreneur, and philanthropist, as well as a social innovator. He's worked at NASA, holds 27 patents, so he must be kind of smart. I don't know. Uh, He's on the board of CapEx, a fintech company designed to help uh, complete the global uh, transition to 100% clean clean energy by 2040 uh, by tripling the rate of investment. Uh, He's also so started the Foundation for Climate uh, Restoration. Peter's mission is to leave a world we are proud uh, to uh, we're, no, to leave a world we are proud of to our children. So that's a that's a great mission. And Peter's got a thirty year track record as a citizen lobbyist uh, for global poverty reduction and climate change. So uh, without further ado, Peter, welcome to the program. Matt, thank you. It's a delight to be with you and to talk with your audience. Okay, tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to working on um, climate change and as in your role as uh, an environmentalist. Yeah, I you know I, I grew up as a child of the '60s and '70s, and my friends were demonstrating against the Vietnam War, and I wanted to make a difference. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I ended up doing astrophysics. And uh, back in 75, I was 19 years old and reading about global warming. I said, oh, that sounds like a problem. Uh, But it was also very clear that we had to get a lot of CO2 out of the atmosphere eventually. Uh, This was the beginning of the Environmental Protection Agency. And so we were optimistic about these things. And the thing that I knew is that we uh, we had submarines, we had spacecraft where they got CO2 out of the air. So it wasn't like we had to invent anything terribly new. We just had to do it better. And that was a matter of engineering. And as a freshman or sophomore, I didn't know any engineering because I was studying physics. I said, oh, let me leave that to the smart people, the smart chemical engineers, and I'll keep studying astrophysics because if I do astrophysics, if I screw up, no one dies. And, and so I got clear it was important and thought, thank God there are others who will take care of it for me. And I went off and followed my bliss and did astrophysics and worked at NASA, worked in artificial intelligence, had a grand old time here in Silicon Valley. But as you can tell, the the leaf turned and 35 years later, it was 2010. And I've been doing volunteer work in poverty reduction, advocating to get funding to vaccinate the world's children, to get microfinance going around the world. Um, We worked with President Bush to get uh, funding for AIDS treatment. All those things were wildly successful, right? Children around the world are vaccinated and that's changed the world. 
microfinance is available everywhere. Uh, and of course, the turning around of the AIDS epidemic made a huge difference. I was spoiled because I was just here in California uh, supporting groups, but uh, I, I was involved in these Earth, these planet changing things and took it for granted. So when 2010 came and I could see that all the progress was leveling out, that I had that, that our progress was going to stop because of global warming. And so I went back and I said, you know, maybe I was wrong. Maybe it's not so easy just to get the CO2 back out of the atmosphere. Let me see what's going on. I discovered that no one was working on it. And that was the point at which I uh, reluctantly uh, agreed to take on uh, climate restoration to to lead the the course. So uh, I think we may have had some uh, similar path in terms of, I believe that uh, in doing some research for our interview, I I saw that you had worked with the group Results, which I had worked with uh, back in the 80s and they were very, you know, successful in, as you said, getting funding for lots of anti-poverty programs around the world, which, which uh, were were quite successful. Um, maybe you could tell our audience a little bit about your work with with that group. Yeah, um, it was, prof- you know, in retrospect, it was profoundly changing. Uh, transformational for me when I started uh, in the mid '80s. Uh, it was just after we got the request from the head of UNICEF, uh, James P. Grant, to get funding to, for the child immunization program they had promised starting in 78. And they promised to vaccinate all, to have all the kids on the planet be vaccinated every year uh, by 1990. And in 85, they realized that they were barely halfway there. And of course, it's the last half is the hardest half. And uh, with the uh, Reagan administration, they were despairing of getting any funding. And we, we took it on. We, we just simply talked with members of Congress and newspapers, and pretty much everyone agreed. And we got the funding, and vaccination rates went from 8% in the 70s to 85%. And they've been there ever since, ever since 1990, at the end of the, the conclusion of that project. Right. As I recall, the the focus of the results group was just writing letters many times and talking to elected officials to get them on board. And in that process of public education, uh, people to start, you know, they saw the the benefit to to uh, the U.S. as well as to the world by being, engaging in this in this process of getting kids vaccinated and and the. Um, you know the anti-poverty programs. What what's the thing that uh, we could do as citizens? Is there a, a similar organization that has developed that that's doing the same thing regarding climate issues? Well, we we our foundation for climate restoration, uh, it's the foundation for climate restoration has local chapters which does similar things. So they work with members of of Congress and uh, help get uh, rules introduced and so on. So it's a much earlier stage than results. Of course, results is, oh my God, almost 40, almost 50, I don't know, 45 years old now, I think. But uh, um, uh, a couple of weeks ago at the beginning of July, 
we got a bill introduced and passed in the California Senate, and it's the first ever um, resolution say, uh, for declaring a commitment to climate restoration. So the main barrier, as uh, we'll discuss uh, shortly, for restoring the climate, it's not technological, it's not even financial. The issue is political, that um, our outlook on climate was really established around 1980 uh, when Reagan uh, took over and changed the the direction that our, our country was taking taking with regards to climate. And um, uh, the UN in 1990 said that our climate goal is to stabilize the climate, which you know if you look at the weather we're having now, we, we really want to go back to what it was. Uh, Forty or eighty years ago, we don't want to stabilize it at the horrible uh, problems we're having now. So um, the main thing we're working on is getting uh, the, to build on this resolution that was passed unanimously in the California Senate uh, a couple of weeks ago. And but so Congress, we'll be introducing it. In, uh, we're looking for members of Congress to introduce it in the House and in the Senate in the next few months. How would you define climate restoration? Well, climate restoration is simply defined as the goal and the actions to restore the climate back to levels that humans have actually survived long term to make sure that our children and grandchildren will survive. Well, it seems like a reasonable goal. I mean, it's hard for anybody to disagree with that one. It's, uh... <laughs> yeah, it was great you know, when, when I... Uh, uh, I'm friends with the uh, California senator who introduced the bill. And I talked to his staffer after it got introduced and went through committee. And he said, you know, there's no opposition to this. Uh -huh. And on the one hand, like, of course, there's no opposition to it. But at the same time, there's that surprise I can see on your face and you can see on my face, like, oh, my God, a climate idea where there's actually no opposition. Well, it's a it's brilliant framing of the issue so that uh, getting 100 percent buy in. So the that's that's a step in the right direction, because obviously there's been a political will issue on this that has gotten in the way of people, uh, politicians buying into it. And I think there there are some ways and we can talk about them uh, after the break uh, in which we can find common ground. And I think that talking about future generations and looking seven generations out or looking at the spiritual principles that many people buy into uh, or you know believe in, like doing to others as you would have them doing to you, uh, you know, that those types of principles lead us to climate restoration. They lead yes. us to non-pollution if we follow those principles it's it pretty straightforward that we shouldn't be polluting right so, right you know you're listening to a climate change i've got peter fikowski on the program and peter and i will be right back after this to talk about his book climate restoration the only future that will sustain the human race
You're listening to A Climate Change, and I've got Peter Fikowski on the program, and Peter is talking to us about his book about climate restoration. Uh, Peter, tell us a bit about the book. What are, What's the main thesis? My understanding is that you've got four promising solutions for climate restoration. What are, what are those solutions, and what should we be doing to implement them? Yeah. Well, you know, the main thesis isn't the solutions. The main thesis uh, is that we all, as we said a few minutes ago, we all want to restore the climate. Everyone does, which is amazing. We have the same climate goal. Uh, we know how, we know what's needed to uh, get CO2 back to pre-industrial levels. And um, the barrier to doing it is, is creating the will. And it's not, and it's not, we have the technology. Uh, And then then a a side conversation on it is simply that the the climate issue was born out of population. That is, there's 10 times more people on the planet than than before the industrial revolution. Now we're not going to, we don't want to go back by a factor of 10, but, but most people agree, most experts agree that getting back to where we were 100 years ago would be very good for maintaining the, our ecosystems. And the very cool thing is, you know, as a physicist, I, I look at the big picture, you know, and at the end of the century, uh, pretty much everyone alive now will have died natural deaths. And so getting back to that sustainable population is just a matter of how many people are born between now and 2100. And with birth rates going down around the world, uh, we're we're going in the right direction. And all we have to do is set our goal to a sustainable population. And once we actually say that's what we want, uh, it'll be pretty natural for policymakers and especially for uh, women who give birth, of course, and and their partners to uh, target the right size families, which is one or two kids. And that's really all there is to say about populations that we can do it. And the reason we haven't is, you know, when I was a kid, we talked about zero population growth, which is like stabilizing the climate. It's like there were too many people already. This is crazy talk. And so the whole mission of the book is for us to say what we really want and not what we're willing to settle for. You know, in terms of sustainable population growth, uh, you hear people like, say, Elon Musk uh, t- saying, no, don't don't slow down the rate of population growth. Have 10 kids. Uh, <laughs> what What's your response to Mr. Musk on that point? Oh, yeah. Uh, my response is this. And it's the same thing for the climate, that what we we want a sustainable population and a sustainable climate. And anything above that, we're playing Russian roulette with our kids. Uh, they may survive and they may not. And if you think about it in terms of Russian roulette, of course, we're taking all the bullets out of the barrel. There's no other thing that that we're that's moral to do. And so uh, some people, when they're not thinking straight, they'll say, well, I think we could survive you know, with two degrees or 10 degrees warming, or I think we could survive with 11 billion people. But, you know, when they settle down and say, no, actually, we don't want to play Russian roulette. Let's just go back to the levels that our planet has sustained for 10,000 or a million years and, well, 10,000 years. It's certainly a bit safer to uh, take that approach uh, because we all know that the every human that takes a certain amount of, uh, you know, energy or uh, 
you know, it, you know, there's a certain amount of uh, usage of raw materials for every person who's here. So obviously, spending having more right. people is going to cause more usage of all those things. So it, it's really not rocket science to come up with that that solution now. In terms of your no, 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 but, but on that point, what's really interesting, and if you have people who love Googling and plotting graphs, if you look at the um, in CO2 emissions, it tracks perfectly population. And when I first saw that, I got a headache because I said, no, wait a minute. You know, uh, most people in the world aren't driving cars like I do, and they're not flying like I do, but they're more of them are driving and flying. And it's like, how is it that the two those two graphs match perfectly? But it's interesting that the our emissions and the population match perfectly going way back probably 150 years. Just an interesting fact. That that is interesting. So uh that seems like it would be a worthwhile goal among others to uh reduce the rate of our population um in order to reduce the rate of emissions. So yeah. Um, and and of all, all, all consuming all, all all resources, you know, forests and minerals, all that. Yeah, right. Uh, in terms of some of the solutions you have for climate restoration, I know there are two of them that were kind of top burner ones for you were related to the iron and the methane um, oxidation. Tell us a little bit about uh, those those yeah. methods. Yeah. So, so um, you know, I, I came about these gradually. And, uh, you know, I first talked to the scientists oh, eight years ago and said, how do we get all the CO2 out? And we listed 10 different ways. And the scientists were all amazed, like, oh, my God, we could actually save the planet. No, I never thought about that. I've been working on climate for 25 years. Um, when all was said and done, the methods that pan out that really make sense happen to be exactly the ones that nature uses. And it's not too... It, 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 after it, after about five years, it made sense to me. You know, I, I'm an MIT physicist, so I was going for the high-tech solutions coming out the gate because I'm not a natural guy. Um, but nature has figured these things out over millions and billions of years. So um, we have ice ages every 100,000 years, roughly. And um, the way and how does nature cool the planet down? What has to remove a lot of CO2, as you said, a trillion tons or a thousand gigatons. And how does it do that? Well, it does it with photosynthesis, of course, in the ocean. So photosynthesis on land is trees, but trees we all know die and then they rot or burn. And this carbon goes back into the air. In the ocean, when plants grow and when they die, they uh, the fish and the plants sink into the deep ocean. And there's no oxygen in the deep ocean. There's very little, and they don't rot. And so before ice ages, there's a lot of photosynthesis in the ocean uh, for reasons I'll explain in a minute. And the plants and the animals sink into the deep ocean. They become what they call dissolved inorganic carbon and just hang out there for 100,000 years or so. And, and then oxygen becomes available and the CO2 comes back out again. We can do the same thing. The what happens in nature is to get the photosynthesis going in the ocean requires putting in the missing micronutrient, and that's iron. 
uh, just like it is for for animals and, and land plants. They need a little bit of iron, or it just does, the biology doesn't work. And uh, in the ocean, iron tends to sink, and so the only source of iron in the deep ocean is is uh, windstorms, is dust storms. And so we can provide uh, before ice ages for various reasons. They get more dust storms that carry iron-rich dust into the ocean, and that causes more plants, which is uh, algae or phytoplankton, to grow in the, in the ocean. And that then pulls the CO2 out of the water and out of the air. We can do the same thing. And the amount of iron required is amazingly low. It's uh, about... Um, uh, well, per square meter, places that you do it, it's about a hundredth of a teaspoon per square meter, per square yard. Uh, overall, to do the whole thing requires about $5 million of iron, or actually iron sulfate per year. That's it, $5 million. And then probably $100 million for ships to distribute it at the right places in the right time. It only takes about 1% of the ocean to uh, to be turned green, you know, because the you know, I like blue ocean. I imagine you do too, but blue ocean isn't green, and green is when you have photosynthesis. And so the idea is to turn certain parts of the ocean at the right time, turn them green, just as nature does when there's a dust storm, say from the Sahara. You know, the Sahara is pink because of iron in the dust, and when it blows across the Atlantic towards the Caribbean. I think that's actually happening right now. Um, the The Atlantic Ocean turns bright green because that that missing iron is available uh, to allow the phytoplankton to grow. So that that's the phytoplankton, a uh, very viable uh, and really quite fast. Well, that's uh, fascinating. Uh, certainly, I've had some other guests on the program, uh, Captain Paul Watson from. Oh uh, yes. And uh, he has talked about the dramatic reduction we've had in phytoplankton and that phytoplankton uh, is a very big source of our oxygen on the planet. So if we kill off our phytoplankton, uh, we're pretty much toast. So, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I'm glad that you worked with results as well. You know, the power of a positive message, like here's what we're going to do you know, when, when you and I were active in results. Um, decades ago, uh, we didn't talk about whose fault it was. We never did. It was always like, okay, good, we're going to provide you know, vaccinations or uh, something else. And so we're doing, you know, the, our climate work is the same thing. We're, rather than complaining about how bad it is, we're saying, okay, here's the deal. We're, we're starting, um, uh, we're actually in the next, th this month, we're starting uh, the Grandparents Fund for Climate Restoration. And so the idea is that who's going to pay for this? It's not a lot of money, like it's $100 million for the iron fertilization. The methane that you mentioned, we can talk about in a minute, um, is probably a billion dollars a year. It's not a lot of money, but it's... Uh, Peter, uh, we're going to go to break for a minute. And we can come back and talk about uh, the methane and, and many other things. Uh, you're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host. And I've got uh, Peter Fikowski, author of Climate Restoration, The Only Future That Will Sustain the Human Race. So very important stuff. Stay tuned.
You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Matter. I've got Peter Fikowski on the program. And Peter, we were just talking about your book and uh, you had gone through this um, kind of your hypotheses, I guess, the projected science project of putting iron in the ocean. It sounds good. Um, I guess uh, I have I do have a follow up question for that in terms of we've seen obviously man interfering with nature to a certain extent uh, or to a great extent in many places and humans generally have a bad tracker track record of messing with nature so uh given that premise um should we trust you and others to put iron in the ocean and is it worth the risk yeah yeah well so um two things for the first one is nature has been doing it for millions of years and so we're doing the same thing nature does in 13 experiments over the last 25 years of this iron fertilization there's been zero reports of any detrimental side effects which is not surprising because again we're doing the exact same thing nature does it's just rather than dust you know winds blowing the dust storm we actually take the the minimal amount of dust and put it in just the right place where we want it uh and so so you uh historically it's safe no one has proposed any real reason it's not now people who don't understand it say well will it cause a harmful algae bloom and the answer is no because harmful algae blooms happen near the coast where there's lots of nutrients washing off the shore um iron fertilization is done in the deep ocean where nutrient levels are uh, almost a million times lower. And so uh, it just never happens. Well, let me ask you in terms of follow-up and um, what are the, where are you at in terms of the process of actually doing this and what kinds of approvals do you need to get to do it? And and what are the next steps on actually effectuating the plan? Yeah, the, um, the tests have been done. Um, you can read in the book about a wide range of them or on my website peterfikowski.com and uh we're we've been hoping for quite a few years to uh redo a test that was done in the gulf of alaska in 2012 11 years ago and in that one uh they, they i'm told that they removed about 100 million tons of co2 um, and the algae, uh, which is essentially food, it's the base of the food web. That's where fish get their food. Um, uh, they were the, the fish catch, the salmon catch in Alaska the following year went up uh, about fourfold for the pink salmon. And so it, uh, it was successful. We're hoping to do it again. I don't know how long it'll take. And I guess your main question is, what would it what would it take to get it started again and and tested more formally? The problem that they had 11, 12 years ago was that they felt that people didn't really want to restore the climate back then. We hadn't hadn't even invented the term. And so, uh, a lot of people were nervous, as you said. They said, well, humans shouldn't intervene on these things. We should just stop intervening. You know, um, they don't say it, but it's sort of like maybe we should go extinct and that'll be best for nature, which may be true, but really is not what I think any of us are really interested in. Uh, what's nice about what we're doing is rather than saying, well, 
you know, people talk about geoengineering and they say, is this geoengineering? And I say, well, it's not really. I call it terraforming the earth to look like earth again. So when we think about geoengineering, it's like taking rabbits to Australia and hoping it's going to work well. And if it doesn't work well, we're sort of screwed. And they, they had that problem in Australia. In this case, we know exactly the outcome we want which is to get CO2 back, get the, the, the climate system back the way it was 10,000, actually just uh, 200 years ago. And we uh, almost everyone knows the climate is a function of CO2. So we just have to get the CO2 back down and we should do it the way nature does it. Well, I certainly like the elegance of it. And I like that you're just kind of using a natural element without any kind of additives or preservatives attached to it. And that certainly helps my confidence level and I say testing it in in certain discrete places to make sure that it it does go according to plan and have protocols in place where we're really looking at it carefully to make sure we don't kind of screw it all up. Uh, yes. Seems like a, a worthwhile way to start. And now tell us about the the methane oxidation uh, plan that you have and how does that work. Yeah, so methane, uh, you probably know, is a, a very important uh, greenhouse gas. It absorbs about a hundred times the has about a hundred times the impact of CO two in the atmosphere. And methane, which is the gas that we use in our gas stoves and and furnaces and so on, methane uh, naturally oxidizes in the atmosphere. There are chemical reactions that happen, mostly triggered by sunlight. And uh, the methane oxidation program is that the goal is to double the rate at which nature oxidizes methane. So again, it's take the same thing that nature does, but do it at just the right place and just the right time uh, with the right uh, uh, compounds to double the rate. And uh, by doing that, we can cool the uh, uh, cut this level of CO2 in half. And because CO2 is such a critical greenhouse gas, that'll bring the, the temperatures back to what they were about the turn of the century, about uh, 20 years ago, which would be fantastic because that was before the huge hurricanes and huge firestorms and so on. So how would, how would you double uh, the rate of methane oxidation? Well, uh, the, the chemical that's uh, that we're testing now and it's been recommended for about six years is uh, iron chloride. It's a chemical in wide use in water systems, both uh, water supply and sewage retreatment. Uh, so it's a very commonly used chemical, and it does occur naturally in the air as dust when you have iron in the air because the chlorine comes from salt, from the sodium chloride. And um, so what the plan is to uh, em emit an aerosol, which is a mist of iron chloride and salt um, in, in certain places where the humidity is low. And the sunlight then knocks one of the chlorine atoms off the molecule. And that chlorine atom, like chlorine bleach, will oxidize any methane molecule it hits. And uh, the... Uh, it, it, the, the testing we've sh we've done so far shows that it works. Uh, hopefully, we'll, in, in the next year or so, we'll do some outdoor tests. Um, 
uh, as I said, the chemicals used widely. So you've got to put it in the right place at the right time. It's not like it's an unusual chemical, but it's not normally at the right place in the right time where there's the UV light from the sunlight available and the low humidity and the right pH and so on. Well, so, having read a little bit about this, there, there's some questions as to how does one do this? It seems like the government, at least in the U.S. and I think in other uh, developed countries, are pretty negative about uh, spraying aerosols of this type up into the air. And, and there's questions about how it would be regulated. Um, tell us a little bit about that and where where you're at in terms of negotiating with the governmental bodies to let let this happen. Yeah, well, we've had discussions with the shipping industry, um, and the shipping industry, of course, are expert in in uh, satisfying the uh, international maritime organization and national requirements. And uh, with both of these, there there is no uh, limitation on doing it per se. The the issue really is making sure we communicate with the public exactly what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, how we're going to ensure the safety. Um, the amount of material is so insanely low for both the iron fertilization and the methane oxidation that um, uh, it, it's not that big an issue. It's primarily a communications issue is, is the limitation because the the... I, the iron fertilization, for example, has been discontinued for about 12 years. And the people who did it, they said, listen, there is no actual law against doing it. But we've been able to produce the media to make people think there's a law against doing it. And they're correct. You know, all the experts say there's no law because you know, it had a huge benefit on the fisheries. But even the fisheries are afraid to, to put a little bit of iron in to feed their fish uh, just because they uh, people made them believe that there's actually actually a lot. There's a recommendation to be careful about it. Anyway, uh, but so it's a communications issue, um, not not a and not a, a specific legal issue. There's no. You, you want to work with the Coast Guard, make sure they know what you're doing, and all of these things. But there's been no objection. What well, kind of uh, leads to another question? Kind of the law of the sea is. It seems like. Uh, somewhat vague and amorphous. I mean, not everything is regulated out in the open ocean. And and one of the things that is happening out in the open ocean is is some degree of mining. And they're doing the mining for minerals, for uh, things that would go into batteries for EV cars and the like. Uh, maybe when we get back from the break, uh, you can comment upon that as well as a lot of other issues I have uh, I'd love to talk to you about. You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Matter, your host, and I've got Peter Pikowski on the program, author of Climate Restoration. So we'll be back in just one minute. Listen to a climate change. This is Matt Matter, and your host. And I've got Peter Fikowski on the program. Peter, right before the break, we we're talking about the underwater mining. I was curious as to your take on that and whether or not that's a, a good thing for us to be doing, or or if we should back off on going that path. 
Yeah, the, the underwater mining sounds like a bad idea. That is, um, really what we want is to get our economy back to a circular economy. I was uh, reading about battery uh, remanufacturing. How do people recycle batteries? That technology is going is growing rapidly. And more and more countries are requiring that people who sell materials have a recycling uh, method for it. It's crazy to disrupt the and like we said in the first section, uh, it ultimately boils down to having a sustainable population. People use resources that we just like the adventure. We like to own things and build things. And uh, yeah, I want to encourage listeners to uh, uh, plan on having small families, encourage your kids to have small families, because that, that's what's going to keep the planet beautiful. So in terms of uh, the scorecard of the government, uh, how is the U.S. government doing? Uh, and then also kind of teeing it up for if you were making the decisions on that front, uh, if you were the king, uh, what do you think would be the top five or 10 steps that you would have the government take uh, moving forward? Yeah, um, the the Inflation uh, Reduction Act last year, I think, was a phenomenal success. Uh, in my book, the, I have a chapter on, on the energy transition. And if you think about it, when the energy transition is done, what we're going to have is all the energy we use for driving and heating our houses and factories, all that is going to come from renewable sources. And that means to get there, we have to build up the renewable sources. At the moment, that's solar and wind. Um, there will always be a certain amount of, of nuclear. There are people working on fusion and so on. But the point is, uh, complaining doesn't make that much difference. Building the wind and solar and batteries, that's how you make the transition happen. And um, the, the Inflation Reduction Act was brilliant in terms of encouraging people to invest in, in the all that infrastructure. So I, I'm just really pleased with what they did there. Then, what, do you, what do you see? Okay, uh, sorry to cut you off, but what do you see as the next steps for the government and where where would you uh, direct us to go? The next step is to uh, build on this focus on restoring the climate for future generations. That's why we had the, the resolution and get through the California Senate. We want it to go through Congress and it's really important for the government to say, really, we're doing this for our grandkids. We didn't, when the country was established 250 years ago, we didn't need to worry about whether the planet would sustain human life. There's nothing in the Constitution requiring the government to maintain the planet because it didn't occur to them <laughs> that that was a problem. Well, it's a problem now. You know, and and our great great grandchildren won't survive on our current path. We need to change that path, and we have an administration now which has the cojones to actually do that. And so, talking to Secretary of Energy um, and talking to you know the Vice President and the President and John Kerry, saying, "Listen." make sure we restore the climate. That's the next step for the government to take. The actions to take, as I said, they're really inexpensive and they're not being done simply because we're uh, following rules built in 1980 and 1990 when the planet was a different planet. So in terms of uh, if you had a, you know, the Mount Rushmore of climate change, um, 
you know, heroes, who would you put on that? Uh... Oh my God. Oh my God. You know, it's been pretty lonely on my climate restoration fight. Let me tell you, uh, Sir David King in, in the UK, he was the first high level person. Uh, he retired from working uh, at, on climate after the uh, the Paris agreements in 2015 and uh, met me a year or two later. And he really adopted climate restoration. He renamed it in a gentler way, climate repair. And I, I, I scorned that a little bit, although I had the deepest respect. I was saying, if you wanna give your cars, your kids a repaired car or a restored car? <laughs> And so I want to give our kids a restored climate. I want to give them the same thing that you and I had growing up or our our parents had. So uh, Dave King, um, uh, Christiana Figueres, she has the heart. I'll I'll, I'll leave it at those two. She brings just her heart and her love of humanity to her work. And she hasn't spoken out about climate restoration yet, and I suspect she will very soon. What about some of the books that have been written recently about this? Uh, John Doerr's book, Speed and Scale, Bill Gates' book about uh, how to prevent a climate disaster. Um, are, do you think that those uh, plot the path for us to go, or is there something that they're missing um, there? Yeah, um, you know, I admire their courage and their boldness to speak out and write the book and get it uh, get it promoted. Um, you know, have you ever heard an expert say that if we actually achieved net zero by 2050, that we would have a chance of survival? No, no. You know, the temperatures are so high now, and they're and the the, the climate is you know is going bad. The ecosystems are collapsing here and there. That life will continue on the planet on our current trajectory, but it won't look anything like you and I grew up with. So. Um, I, I would accuse Gates and Dorr of being resigned about the climate and not knowing that they're resigned, that there's, you know, they're acting like there's nothing we can do to restore it and give our children a climate that we know is going to work. And so um, I want to wake them up. I don't know quite how we're going to do it other than with our resolutions. And maybe they're going to listen to our podcast here. Well, you just got to keep putting in those ideas out there and eventually, um, they start making waves. So, you know, I, I think that you're you're on to the right path. And I, you know, I, I admire the work that you're doing. Um so on a personal level, where do you where do you land as far as personal sustainability and you know having a car versus mass transit, taking trains or planes, uh, vegetarian, uh what what role does that have in addressing climate change? Well, um, it's 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 very symbolic. So, um, you know, I have the career I have. I'm here in Silicon Valley. I don't drive much because I work out of my house and have for decades. Um, one of the th- turning points in my life was putting solar panels on my house because I I wasn't into the climate. I said earlier, I had said, oh, let let the experts take care of it. I'll do the hard hard things like astrophysics. But I noticed, you know, when I look out my window at the at the panels on my roof, it always it reminds me of my commitment to our children, which is why I put the panels on. My daughter in high school said, Dad, how about solar panels? I said, eh, it's not going to pay off well. I said, you know what? What the hell? For my daughter, I'll do it. And it transformed my life. And so being vegetarian, all these things, 
it's not so much that they're going to save carbon. They really don't save much carbon, a little bit, but they change you and let them change you. And they change the perspective you have. And that changes the actions you take. I think that's well said. And I think there's that balance between personal kind of growth and growth as a community. And as certainly to the extent that we're authentic as being leaders and, and our commitment to doing it personally kind of gives us a little bit more moral authority to ask others to make that change as well. If, if we're not doing much personally, it's harder to make the pitch that other people should do much. Yeah, you know, uh, I started mentioning we're creating this grandparents fund for restoring the climate, and it's not open for business yet. It will be by the end of the month, and I invite everyone to to find it if they remember. Uh, it'll be uh, uh, the grandparents grandparents fund for climate for climate restoration, and uh, but the, the point is that uh, you you'll be able to make a, a monthly donation that will actually fund the ocean fertilization, the methane oxidation, the governance. We're putting together a, a global governance group that will make sure that all these things are done safely. Because currently there's no government with authority to keep the planets, the climate safe, right? It, it wasn't needed when all our governments were created. And so we said, well, we'll do it as a simple nonprofit. And we already have a group at The Hague in the Netherlands who want to bring it in to, to The Hague. It'll take a year probably. But the point is um, people can get involved. And the best way to get involved is with an with a monthly donation. It, it I, I, I love neuroscience. And what happens is when you take that monthly action, that trains your brain that you're committed. Just like when I looked up at my my uh, solar panels, it tells my brain that I'm committed to the climate, and I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, that's uh, that's brilliant, and I uh, often say uh, the the phrase that Gandhi had, which was uh, "Be the change you want to see in the world." And so, if you are doing those things on a daily basis or monthly basis, you start to uh, really exude that out into the planet. Well, Peter, uh, it's been great having you on the program. Uh, Peter Fiakowski, author of Climate Restoration, The Only Future That Will Sustain the Human Race. Everybody go out and get a copy of that book. Also check out uh, Peter's foundation, the Foundation for Climate Restoration on the internet, as well as uh, his social channels. Also tune in to our social channels at uh, climatechange.com and Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff, as well as uh, take a look at some of our old episodes. You can look at them on Apple and Spotify at a climatechange.com uh, and also at uh, Climate Change with Matt Matter on Spotify and Apple. Uh, tune in next week. We've got some great guests coming up and uh, you can always listen in to the earlier part of Peter's interview if you missed the first part on the radio. It's it's on the internet. So everybody have a great week. And as Peter said, get engaged and start doing something because that will change the planet. We can change the world.